Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 41, Purgatorio, Canto Settimo, the third day, afternoon. Apologies for a late episode again. I had a migraine for the best part of the last 24 hours and then the hangover that comes with it, so I was only getting started at the time of the intended release. I should probably have a loser time for release and ask you to subscribe on iTunes or wherever so that you get the alert when I get around to it if you want to be kept informed about the new release. But I still want to aim to get stuff done a day ahead except when, of course, I have mitigating circumstances, because the truth is, I need the discipline. The good news is the canto seems to be another slow one, as there are the interpretative summary on the Italian website suggests there would be two main topics, and the movement to link them. Also, apologies if the recording for today and tomorrow picks up the music that my neighbour is playing loud enough for a street party, despite the fact that my windows are closed, with the curtain down while at that thanks to the modern marvel of hair conditioning. The first topic will be the explanation of how the climbing of the Mount of Purgatory works. His part of the Cantus is Virgil as the main protagonist, rather than Dante, as he has this dialogue with Sordello, possibly at the same time as Dante had his train of thoughts that occupied the last canto. I may be off here, but the first verse said, after the greetings had been repeated various times, and to me that sounds like the action in the two canti was somewhat simultaneous, or at least the greetings took long enough for Dante to be lost in his thoughts and his attention then called back to the events taking place in front of him when he might have had something to say, except that he didn't say anything. Uh, Then it's like, Dante really isn't even there. Sordello will treat Virgil's journey as if it had nothing to do with Dante, and Virgil doesn't exactly rush to correct his misunderstanding. I wonder if he's taking the unvirtuous revenge for having been left out of the actions ever since they left out. Verses 13-21 to 21 are an interesting event. Sordello acts with a degree of reverence towards Virgil. She is entirely believable as a thought that Sordello would have had about Virgil rather than just being Dante speaking through him. But what happens next shows a surprising degree of humility on behalf of Virgil. He refers to the divine appointment of his journey and his sorrow that he lacked the faith to allow him to be in purgatory for himself rather than as a traveller through it. And the fact that he doesn't know the inner workings of purgatory makes Sordello the unofficial guide for the time being. It'll be impossible to see where you are going after it's dark, and apparently the sun is already going down, although it's only about 3pm. And so, or at least that's what it says in like my timeline. Anyway, they will spend the night somewhere. This will introduce the second topic of the canto, but not after a short interlude to describe to us the journey and the beauty of the little valley whose colours and smells were something beyond the nature that Dante had experienced in the other hemisphere. They can hear the souls before they see them, as they are busy singing the Salve Regina, or Hail Holy Queen in the English translation. Sordello will tell them they will get a better view of these souls from higher up, and so it won't leave them there yet, and it'll waste no time in telling us who's who. 
This count to them will be linked to the previous one, not just as a continuation of the scene with Sordello, but because it repeats the political themes. The first soul we see, higher up than all of the others, and not even joining in with the prayer, is the soul of the Emperor Rudolf I, who can be considered to be almost single-handedly responsible for what Dante has said in the monologue in Canto Sesto. He is not the only name in this canto that shows Dante goodwill, Dante's goodwill sorry, in making them saved. Close to him was Ottokar II of Bohemia, who appears to have died at the hand of Rudolf, or at least in a war against him. But like him, he is exalted above his son. This is possibly, as pointed out by Singleton, an echo of the Aeneid, as in the Elysian, enemies are reunited in peace after death. Sordello's words indicate to us that Rudolf is mostly guilty of sins of omission, in the way he governed while the presence of Ottokar is a bit less straightforward. We are told him as a child was a better ruler than his son in adulthood, but he still is found in this group of people who are collectively named negligent princes. Having read his biography twice over, I'm persuaded he's there because of his connection to Rudolf, although there is nothing in it to suggest that he was particularly pious in life. To be fair, I'm not sure I take that as a sign that he wasn't, I haven't seen it yet, but I heard the film about Tolkien that came out last year or the year before has managed to downplay his faith, so there is no guarantee that it isn't just the bias of whoever brought it all up, or even just the availability of the sources, since in this case we are talking about people who have died almost a millennium ago. As, in fact, the other names we are about to see were all near contemporaries of Dante. Philip III of France, who died during a retreat, which we are told brought dishonour to France. His nickname, Olardi, has more to do with his abilities in battle than his character, who makes the title sound sarcastic. He was notoriously shy and easily manipulated and controlled by everyone else around him, as we know from the circumstances of Pierre de Bros a few days ago. Uh, next to him was Henry I of Navarre, who was not even a bad king, but died at the age of 30 due to health complications related to his weight. He was the father-in-law of Philip IV of France, who was the son of Philip III, whom Dante named the evil of France. I mean, Philip IV was the evil of France. I wonder why Henry is there, though. Uh, the various commentaries don't seem interested in the question. My hypothesis is that his fault was what led him to die too young, which gave more power to Philip. The verses dedicated to them seem to suggest a lot of their suffering in death has to do with knowing what their successor is up to. Then we see Peter III of Aragona, a warmonger and patron of the arts, who repented on his deathbed, found singing with his rival Charles of Anjou. Despite the fairly positive attribute of being full of valour, he is not sent to a higher place than the guest, because Charles has crossed the line between temporal and spiritual power of the church one too many times, manipulating papal elections and getting enemies excommunicated and asking for favours in return to loyalty to a pope that was not his ideal candidate, etc. Then we have the line about the successors of Peter, which seems to imply the best one to take the throne was the, die, the one who died too young to ever have a chance to succeed, and for some reason he is sitting behind his father. I don't know why he's there, except to provide the space for Dante for having a go at the two actual successors for having the territories, but not the goodness of their father. This, Sordello tells us, 
is willed by God so the people would ask him to grant it to them. Like the great king Solomon could pray for wisdom, I guess. Dante must have had an ideal of what good kingship looked like since, you know, he wrote a whole book about it. Anyway, James and Frederick are only mentioned in passing, too fresh in the mind of contemporaries to need any worse spent on them. And we move on to see that Dante had not changed his mind about Charles and Drew after all, but rather acted somewhat objectively as a literary representation of divine justice, which has its own reasons for things whether or not we agree with them. And we are reminded with the line about the wives that Dante does not, in fact, agree with them. Then we see the king with a simple life, that is Henry III of England, who left better hairs than the others, although I'm not so sure that history has proven that sentence right. He was, however, a king known for his piety, so I am surprised a bit that he's found there. But then he did see civil war in his reign, so perhaps his inability to get that under control weighs too much in Dante's judgement. Lastly, we see the Marquis of Monferrato to the side in prayer. He turned his side to Charles of uh, against Charles of Anjou, who he had initially supported until Anjou had turned against modern-day Lombardy, and his brilliant military career came to a dramatic end when he was captured in Alessandria, where he died after being exposed in a cage for 18 long months. His son attempted to avenge him and discussed them, his territories, a lot. And the misery caused by these events is the reason we are told the territories of Monferrato and Canavese weep for Williams' sake. And the canto ends on this sad note. Until tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is Panfer 10 or Etz if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Chic or on my blog www.chicandcatholic.com. <laughs>